Hey ho and welcome back to Ye Olde Writers Show podcast. Today we're delving deep into the world of historical fiction with actor, playwright and screenwriter Ron Destro. He'll introduce us to his latest work, The Star, The Moon, The Sun, which challenges everything we thought we knew about the legendary William Shakespeare. Imagine a world where the tales surrounding Shakespeare were woven intricately to safeguard the very crown of England. Ron's gripping historical detective story transports us to 1624 London. Here a courageous printer meets a tragic end. A renowned poet mysteriously disappears. A grave in Stratford-upon-Avon is eerily emptied and King James is thrown into a whirlwind of chaos. Amidst swashbuckling adventures and deceptive appearances, our protagonists, the valiant Nicholas and the enchanting Valentina, are on the brink of unveiling the true identity behind William Shakespeare. Ron's narrative beautifully intertwines themes of paternal love, the looming threat of the plague, the simple pleasures of turnips, and the enigmatic life and untimely demise of the Bard of Avon. Join us as we journey through this captivating tale that reimagines the world of William Shakespeare like never before. Let's dive right in. Ron Destro, welcome to The Writer's Show, and uh, congratulations on your book, The Star, The Moon, The Sun. How do you feel about the various reactions and reviews your book has received, especially from notable figures in the theatre and literary world? Well, I'm, I'm very proud of the book, and I'm proud of the reaction that it's uh, received. Uh, I, was, I was extremely happy that Sir Derek Jacobi liked the book because I had him in mind as the narrator as I was writing the book, and then when I asked him to read it and give me a blurb, and he enjoyed it so much and gave me a nice, a nice little quote that I asked if he would read the audio book. And so I was very pleased that he would consent to do that. What was it like working with him? Well, uh, I, I've known him on and off through the years because I run a nonprofit theater group called the Oxford Shakespeare Company. And uh, I've asked Derek a couple of times to give master classes, once in New York and once in London, to my actors. And he graciously consented. And the result of those master classes and others uh, resulted in a book called The Shakespeare Master Classes, which yeah. is a series of 13 interviews. So uh, it, it was wonderful working with him because he... Uh, really brought to life the book in a way that no one else could, I think. Almost, definitely. His, his voice is wonderful. Yes, yes. The most beautiful, even at the age of 84. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite a voice. So let's talk about the book, the, the Star, the Moon, the Sun. What inspired you to write and delve into the mysteries surrounding William Shakespeare's identity? Well, uh, for years, I was a Shakespearean actor and director, and I was also a playwright. Uh, and when I got 
when I was introduced to the authorship question, I thought this is amazing because here we have perhaps the greatest writer ever, and we know so little about him. And what we do know seems to indicate that he was not the writer of the works that are attributed to William Shakespeare. And so I just thought this was a fascinating mystery. And I began to research it about 20 years ago. And I read all of the books about it and the various candidates. And I thought, you know, what would be great would be to write a mystery, a sort of an Elizabethan murder mystery, the solving of which just happens to reveal who Shakespeare was. And that way it could introduce uh, Shakespeare to uh, a new audience, just readers who maybe are not necessarily interested in Shakespeare or know Shakespeare all that well, but are interested in murder mysteries. And so that was my goal, not to prove a point or an argument, although I, I hope I do a little bit of that in the book, but primarily the goal was just write a good page-turning mystery. What are your personal beliefs or theories about Shakespeare's true identity? Well, I uh, I was turned on to this idea by a wonderful voice teacher named Kristen Linkletter, who is a Shakespearean voice coach. And uh, Kristen, uh, she sort of uh, inspired me to research. And, and so I sort of resigned from life for five years out in the woods of Connecticut all alone with my wife and the deer and the ducks and all of these books about the Shakespeare authorship question. And uh, I came to the conclusion pretty early on uh, with the support of people like, you know, writers know about writing and they know what's required of a writer. So I, I, came to the conclusion early on that people like Mark Twain and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry James and Walt Whitman and James Joyce, they were all right. They all knew there was something wrong with this story about William Shakespeare, the Stratford man, being the greatest writer in the English language. So uh, I thought, I looked at the, the various arguments for Christopher Marlowe and the Earl of Oxford, and even some some people thought even Queen Elizabeth or Amelia Bassano, and uh, so so I came to the conclusion early on that the Earl of Oxford seemed to be the most likely candidate, given that whoever Shakespeare was, he seemed to be determined to put Oxford's life on stage. So much of it is biographical. Yeah. How do you think the revelations in your book might change the way people view Shakespeare and his works? Well, I hope that people will maybe have a new appreciation for how autobiographical the plays and the sonnets are and know that these are not just writing exercises. This, these are the heart strings of a real person uh, writing about real human beings and relationships that he experienced. And that's what the best writing is, really. You write about what you know. And yeah. uh, so many traditional scholars have said, well, if you look at the sonnets, they tell a story, but it's not the story of the Stratford man. Therefore, they were an elaborate writing exercise. Well, that takes a lot out of it. 
when you read those sonnets, you, you read the heartache and the emotions and to know that they come from a real person, to know that Hamlet, for example, is one of the most autobiographical plays, that may be why it's regarded the best play of Shakespeare's because there's so much in it that if you know about the true man who wrote it, then you could say, ah, well, I see why Hamlet does this and why Hamlet does that. But the reaction from academia, and uh, I myself am a professor. I teach at the University of North Florida, mm -hmm. and uh, there are many professors who think we're crazy. We're absolutely nuts. And uh, so I'm, I understand that, that we're, we're almost telling them that their God does not exist because Shakespeare is the sort of secular God of England and, uh, you know, bardolatry and all of that. Yeah. So, and if you, Elizabeth Winkler has written a book recently called uh, Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies. And it's all about her experience writing an article for a magazine and then getting such backlash from the Shakespeare establishment that she decided something is strange here. And she decided to write a book about the backlash, which is now doing very well uh, all over the world. And uh, I'll be with her at a conference in New Orleans uh, in a couple of months. Uh, but I, I decided I wanted to write a fictionalized, a historical fiction, which might explain how it happened and why it happened. What, what do you hope readers will take away from, from your book? Well, I hope it will demystify Shakespeare a little bit, but it's really not so much about proving who Shakespeare was, but it's, it's, it's a murder mystery. I hope they'll just come, come away from it thinking, wow, that was a good read. I really enjoyed it. It had a lot of twists and turns, a lot of spoilers and so forth. But on a deeper level, I, you know, it's really a book about fathers and sons. That's yeah. an important part of it. And I couldn't have written this book without having been a father myself and, and knowing how important that is. So uh, it, there's a, a lot about fathers and sons in here. There's a little bit about the way uh, the plague affected the world. Yeah. And of course, coming off of COVID and the way the world reacted to COVID. Yeah. I wanted to touch a little bit uh, about that, but I hope readers would just come away saying that was a, it was a fun read. Uh, the narrator is, uh, I think, uh, funny, Arthur Taverner, who's a kind yeah. of a drunken, portly poet, kind of a Falstaff character. And so I hope they'll come away saying that that was fun to read. And I, I learned quite a bit about, about a period that, uh, you know, 400 years ago, um, the Elizabethan period, but uh, I, I just hope they'll enjoy the, the mystery of it. Why do you love Shakespeare? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, you know, I, when I first started, uh, at, I've been acting since I was about eight years old, but when I went to university, of course, I was still, like most people, intimidated by Shakespeare, and I thought, you know, if I could do Shakespeare, I could be, I could act anything. I mean, that's, that's, if you talk to casting directors and producers, they'll, they'll often say, well, if this guy can act Shakespeare, he could do anything. So I'll hire him for, you know, uh, a Marvel comic hero 
or uh, a soap opera or just a commercial where he gets to dance around a hamburger. But uh, so I thought I'm going to I'm going to try to master the, the what I would think would be the most difficult. And the funny thing about Shakespeare is, of course, I always appreciated the beauty of the work. Uh, but the funny thing about acting Shakespeare is once you understand the keys and you can unlock these these keys, uh, you can you can you can find a way to unlock Shakespeare, then uh, it it actually is easier to act because it has a rhythm to it. The iambic pentameter helps you as an actor. And when the rhythm changes, that's Shakespeare telling you the emotion has now changed. So the heartbeat is beating differently because that normal de-dump-de-dump-de-dump-de-dump-de-dump, that iambic pentameter, when he breaks it, he's saying, your heart is beating differently. Something is going on. So it, it's sometimes easier to act than a modern piece. Interesting. Let, let's uh, talk a bit more about acting and directing. Yes. Um, with over 100 plays and 40 Shakespeare productions under your belt, which one stands out as the most memorable for you and why? Well, uh, uh, well, there were a couple that I fondly think of. I, I once directed a production of Twelfth Night at Sam Houston State University with college students. And that was very meaningful to me, maybe one, because we built a mini globe theater. And so by that, I mean that the stage jutted out and we had groundlings standing around the actor at the actor's feet and like they do at the globe mm -hmm. theater. And I think what made that special was the actors all realized that Oh, instead of coming out and doing a soliloquy, to be or not to be, that is the question. I'm sort of talking to myself and the audience hears me. No, you have all these people at your feet. Suddenly you're talking. It, it wouldn't make sense unless you're talking right directly to the audience. And at the Globe Theater, the audience and the actors are in the same light. So there's no separation. So suddenly Shakespeare becomes a communication between actor and audience. So that was a that was a special production because of the, the theater space itself. And the kids were just fantastic. So it was great to do that. Uh, another one that stands out, I directed a production of Waiting for Godot in Shanghai, uh, China. And um, the reason I chose it was because I thought that the Chinese living under communist rule, that the, the, the people could understand what it was like to wait for something to make their lives better, and it yeah. never came. And so there was, a, there was a deep resonance with the audience. They laughed in all the right places. They were quiet in all the right places. And they, so I felt a strong communion with the Chinese people uh, and uh, us doing that play. Of course, um, you've had success with your own Oxford Shakespeare Company and its mission to train actors in presenting Shakespeare plays in their original settings. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, that um, it came out of the fact that I studied at American universities and then I spent a year on a program with the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art uh, on an American program. And I learned so much about performing Shakespeare from these wonderful teachers and directors in London. They do it in such a 
different way than we do in America that I said, what I'd like to do someday is take Americans over and let them have the experience that I have, even if it's just for a short time. I was there for a year. What we do now is we audition actors from all over the world uh, via the internet. And then I cast them and I say, okay, you're going to be Hamlet. You're going to be Horatio. You'll be Gertrude. And if they accept, I say, you memorize your part. We all meet in London at this address, at this date. We rehearse for one week. And while I direct the plays in the morning, I then have my colleagues who teach at the Royal uh, Shakespeare Company or, or the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. I have them offer classes to the actors in the afternoon. So they're learning and they're, they're learning by doing. And at the end of the week, we present a full production and we do it in historical locations. For example, recently we performed Hamlet in Elsinore, Denmark. And we, uh, one of my favorite places to perform, we've done Macbeth a couple of times in Burnham Wood in front of the Burnham Oak, which is a 1000 year old oak tree that was there when the original King Macbeth lived. And uh, we've done Richard III on Bosworth Field where he was killed and Henry V on the battlefield of Agincourt in France. What do you think Shakespeare has to tell modern, modern readers and audiences? Well, that's the great thing about Shakespeare and why he's still being performed after 400 years, I think, because he was so universal. He's writing, it's true, there, there are politics in the play. He's telling Queen Elizabeth uh, about Lord Burley and don't trust this Lord and you can trust this other one. So there were all kinds of secret political messages in the plays. However, that's under the surface. On the surface, there are plays about human beings and love and jealousy and hatred. You know, so there are these universal kind of ideas that no matter where you live or when you live, you can relate and identify to being jealous and being, uh, you know, wishing uh, you were with somebody else and so forth. So I think that's the secret is of, to his universality. You, you've, of course, had the privilege of studying with renowned figures like Cicely Berry, Kristen Linklater, and John Barton. Yes. How have these experiences shaped your approach to theatre and acting? Well, uh, it, I tell you, it's, it's been an honour to be able to study with these people. They were my heroes. Uh, and I worked uh, privately with John Barton for 10 years. And um, they, and all these wonderful voice teachers, Kristen Linkletter and Sis Barry and Patsy Roddenberg, uh, it's, it's been amazing not only what they taught me in class, but also their, their approach to theater itself. And again, it's kind of like the difference between American theater, which lets, you know, the, the, the ultimate uh, symbol of American theater is kind of method acting, where, yeah. where a lot of actors tend to play themselves and they'll take the character and change it to fit them. Yeah. And the problem with that is that the result is that their acting seems to be the same in every every play or movie they do. Now, that's OK if you're a Hollywood movie star because you've created a brand. So they want De Niro always to be De Niro and they wanted Brando always to be Brando. They didn't want them to act. And so uh, 
the British approach it differently, and they they want to be chameleons, and they they bring themselves to the character, and that's why you have these wonderful actors like Gary Oldman, who transform themselves completely, and Mark Rylance, and these these wonderful actors. It's just such a different approach, and they have their movie stars too, which is fine, but but it's there's a there's a discipline with the British teachers that sometimes we lack in some of the American schools. Yeah. You know, and, and they don't seem to have the ego that Americans, uh, that American actors have. I mean, you can, you can see a great show at the West End or at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and afterwards you'll see half the cast in the pub next door. And yeah. they're as, as nice as can be. Quite different. Yes. Yes. Look, looking through your biography on your website and mentions mentions a few intriguing anecdotes, such as oh. <laughs> writing a play with Yoko Ono and being yes. banned from Caesar's Palace by Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Can you share the story behind one of these? Incidents? Oh, sure. Well, uh, well, with Yoko, I I wrote a play about Hiroshima, and I wanted to add music, not doing a musical, but sort of a play with music. And so I immediately thought of Yoko Ono because I wanted uh, a hard sound and uh, I wanted a Japanese sound or influence. And Yoko had lived through the bombings of Tokyo when she was a little girl. So uh, I, I didn't know her. And none of my friends, I kept asking around, does anyone know Yoko Ono? And nobody did. So someone, one of my friends just said, well, why don't you you just send her flowers? Because I had written a letter and I didn't get a response because a lot of times the people in the office don't hand on letters. I I said, I'd love for you to write music for my play. She never got it. Well, so the next day I sent her flowers and I got a call from her, Yoko's, Yoko's office called and they said, Yoko wants to thank you for the flowers and she asked you to send the play. So I sent the play, and a few months later, she called me out of the blue, and she said, I'd, I'd love the play. I want to do the music. Let's, why don't you come over to the Dakota, and we'll, we'll talk. And so uh, that's, that's what we did. We sat down. And by the way, I was expecting this. What had I had heard and read was this dragon lady, you know, yeah. and she couldn't have been nicer. She was the sweetest person, one of the nicest ladies I've ever met. And we sat down and she made tea for me and we we read the play and she was very wonderful. And she said, uh, yeah, I'd love to do the music. And she did. And the play went on. It had a, a, a short run in New York, but it, it won an award at the Kennedy Center. And so it was it was really lovely. And it was great working with her. The Frank Sinatra story uh, was just a misunderstanding. <laughs> I was a young kid in Las Vegas. I was traveling. Uh, I left my home in New York to go to school in Los Angeles, and uh, I spent a couple of days in Las uh, in Las Vegas. And Frank was playing with at the at Caesar's Palace, so I thought, "Oh, I'd love to hear him sing. I'm a big fan." And so uh, the the thing was sold out, and I happened to find out what room he was in. So being this young, naive, 19-year-old kid, I decided to go up. Maybe I'll see him in the hallway or something. And I was walking around the, the hall, down the hallway, 
suddenly his door opened, his, his, uh, his guy, uh, his bodyguard opened the door and said, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm nobody just walking. Uh, what are you doing here? Did, were you out on the ledge? I said, excuse me, we're like 20 <laughs> flight, stories up. <clears throat> Mr. Sinatra saw somebody on the ledge. Anyway, they took me down to the office. They said, you know, you know you're trespassing. Are you a resident of the hotel? I said, no, no, I'm just, they said, well, you can go to the casino, but you can't come up to the hotel. That's, we could have you arrested. So they took my, they took a picture of my license. They looked at the license and said, well, listen, because you're a hometown boy, and I don't know if that meant because I was Italian or I was from New York, uh, it was a New York driver's license. They said, we're, we're not going to call the police, but you are banned for life from coming within a thousand feet of Caesar's palace. And that's my Frank Sinatra story. <laughs> Have you ever, ever gone back to Caesar's? Uh, I've never gone back to Caesar's, but I did get to see Frank sing at, uh, in Buffalo. So, so it was not a total loss. Uh, circles closed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. You've uh, you've also collaborated with um, Academy Award winner F. Murray Abraham, one of my favorite actors. Oh how yes. That, how did that come about? What what was it like working with him? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, Murray is one of the nicest people in the world. I mean, and obviously super talented, but just mm. so unassuming, so wonderful. And I tell you how we met. Um, it was a year after he won the Oscar for Amadeus. Uh -huh. And Murray in those days lived in Brooklyn and he would go into commute into to Manhattan to perform on Broadway, but he was still living in Brooklyn. So he decided, great guy that he was, he wanted to teach at Brooklyn College. So this is a year after the Oscar. So he starts teaching at Brooklyn College. Now I happen to be there in the master's directing program. And so I was really uh, saddened by the fact that I couldn't take a class with Murray because he was teaching the actors. Well, and he'd bring friends in uh, like Geraldine Page and so forth to talk to the class. I mean, I was really jealous. Well, one day I was in the elevator and I wanted to do as my master's thesis production, a play by Schnitzler called La Ronde. And the, the committee did not want me to do the play because they said, well, it's all about the class system and there's no class system in America. So, you know, there's no point doing that play. Well, I was in an elevator and I was complaining about it to a fellow student that they didn't want me to do La Ronde. Suddenly a big booming voice from the back of the elevator says, La Ronde, that's a great play. You should do it. And I turned and it was Murray. Yeah. And uh, so I had the good sense to say, well, if you were my faculty advisor, they would probably let me do it. And he said, you got it. So, uh, so he uh, advised me in putting the play together and he would give some notes and so forth. And that's how we became friends. Uh, years, and then I hadn't seen him for a while. Years later, I, uh, I happened to be walking down Greenwich Village and Murray was crossing the street. He said, Rod, I hear you did this play with Yoko. And uh, he started talking about that. And so it just as if uh, it had only been yesterday that I saw him. So uh, I then invited him to do some Oxford Shakespeare Company master classes. And uh, a couple of his workshops are, are in that Shakespeare master classes book. 
but he's been a great friend and uh, he's just so he's just so unassuming and so wonderful. As a matter of fact, when I uh, I had come up with an early version of the star, the moon, the sun, and I had written it as a screenplay uh, years ago. And uh, when I told Murray about it, he said, oh, I, you know, I said, would you, would you want to do it? He said, sure, I'd, I'd love to do it. And then I said, oh, you know, I'd love for such and such director to uh, direct it. Do you have a contact? He said, let me tell you something, Ron. I've worked with this director and we have not, we don't really see eye to eye, but he said, you should use that director because his name would mean more to the project than my name. That's how unassuming he is. Yeah. Wonderful story. It's such a rich and varied career, Ron. What's next? Any upcoming uh, projects or aspirations you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, um, we we are, uh, of course, my publisher, who's... Uh, who's in Australia, actually. Uh, she's got a, started a new publishing company called Contempo. Uh, yes. Of course, we're, we're talking to people about hopefully maybe doing a movie or series on, on this book. Wonderful. But uh, other than that, I've decided to take a couple of my previous plays and see if I can novelize them now that I've written my first novel. So I'm working... The next one is about a uh, dowry burning in India, rather serious subject. Yeah, and yeah. Th that's going to be followed by a story about Picasso and the theft of the Mona Lisa. And, uh, and I was asked uh, by, uh, there's a, a wonderful pop group from the 80s and 90s who live in Scotland. And people have been after them about doing a, I guess they call them jukebox musical, taking a lot of their music and stringing them together into, into a play, a Broadway show or something. So it looks like that might be one of my next projects as well. Fantastic. Well, that, that's a good spot to wrap, wrap it up. Where, where can listeners buy a copy of The Star, The Moon and The Sun and find out a bit more about Ron Destro? Well, I guess rondestro.com is, is the easiest way to do it. Uh, if they go to, to the link that has the star, the moon, the sun on it, it'll take them to a page where they can, they can order if they want a paperback or an ebook. Or if they click the link, it'll take them to Amazon to get the, uh, the audio book with Derek Jacoby. Fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Ron. And, um, Good luck for the book, and thank you for the preview copy. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, terrific. It's nice to hear. It's wonderful to talk to you, Jeff. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That was Ron Destro, and you can get yourself a copy of The Star, The Moon, The Sun from Ron's website at rondestro.com. Now, the Writer Show podcast is produced by Madhouse Media Publishing. Have you got a book in you that needs to get out? Don't see a doctor, just call the experts at Madhouse Media Publishing on 1300 402 526 and find out how we can help you make it happen. 
That's it for me. I'm your host, Jeff Hughes. This is The Writer Show podcast. Talk to you next time. (laughs) 